The following audio content is a talk from Convergence, a service for young adults at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at upc.org forward slash young adults. I uh, borrowed a, uh, somebody who's in here, I'll just call him a friend, uh, costume last year. I was a gorilla. I made the little girl next door cry multiple times. <laughs> So I toned it down a little bit this year. Uh, I dressed up as a cartoon character. Uh, it goes along with uh, my boys got these crazy alien outfits and they loved them and stuff like that. Nobody, no, everybody just thought I was dressing up normal. So they're like, "What's your deal?" I was like, "But dude, the watch. Did you see the watch? It was like the only thing cool about my outfit. It was a white T-shirt." But we had fun. Um, appreciate that Caleb um, didn't wear the costume that we bought him this year which was great. We spent $30 so he could have the costume that he wanted, and he ended up going, well, I'm just going to wear the one from last year. It was like, awesome. That's okay. It's all about having fun. It's all about having candy and all that stuff. Anyways, um, enough of that. Hey, listen, we are in the series. Uh, if you're just joining us tonight, uh, it's a series in Romans 12, uh, 1 to 8. We're hanging out in uh, uh, just eight verses uh, over these 10 weeks. Uh, three challenges, really, that, that come at us um, in... In this passage, uh, this passage really is about, um, it's a turning point in the book of Romans in which Paul begins to say, here's what it looks like for you to actually live this thing out. That if you want to live the Christian life, and I'm passionate that you, that you do, that you live it in an authentic way, that you live it in a way um, that makes a real difference in your life, you ha- this is how you do it. And actually what he's been doing in the, in the 11 chapters beforehand is laying the groundwork. Um, he's been trying to kind of knock all the hurdles out of the way that would keep them um, from this life. Uh, not just of, of coming to know uh, God for the first time in Jesus Christ, but actually beginning to, to experience the fullness of what that uh, could look like. Um, so Romans 12, he says, okay, here's what it looks like. And he sums up, he says, therefore, in view of God's mercy. And we talked about at the, begin, at the beginning that everything really has to do with our view on the mercy of God. Because if, he, if we're going to actually live this out, and if the, the Christians that he was writing to uh, in Rome are going to have any chance, they're going to have to let go of the things that they are used to trusting in and trust wholly in the mercy of God. That's the commonality that they have that, that gets them to stop bickering and squabbling. That, that's when they begin to move outside of what they can do and how they can control and how they can be better than other people is when they begin to, to live in a view of God's mercy, His abundant mercy that, is, that has been poured out for everybody. But we talked about that's a vulnerable spot. It's a spot that a lot of people don't want to um, go. Uh, it's easy to say, uh, to go to church and pretend that I really don't need to be there. Um, because I got it all together. Um, and yet, when that happens, what we end up doing is, is playing games, and we begin to wonder, why am I not experiencing something more of what I had hoped for out of my faith? Well, part of that is that it's because we're coming, and we're thinking, well, I, I'm good enough. Um, I've done enough good things. I, I, I've grown up in the right family. I, have, uh, I haven't made any big mistakes, or, um, or I can play the game well. We wonder why there's, there's no power in that. So the first challenge is to lay it down, to, to lay your life down, all of your life down in view of God's mercy. The second challenge is this, is to, to belong to more than me. That if we're going to live this thing out, we have to get out of, out of the, the lie of individuality, of a private faith, that, that somehow that, well, it's true, that, that our faith needs to be personal. And yet it can't be individual. We have to belong to more than ourselves. And in fact, there are people around us. In fact, the church needs you. You might feel like you don't need the church. You don't need community. Well, I probably would argue with that. But I know for certain that there are people that need you. They need your gifts. Um, if they're going to be able to accomplish anything of what God is calling us to. And then the last is this, is that engage what you've got. And, and what Paul goes into, we're not going to read it tonight, but what Paul uh, begins to um, list off is he says, okay, look, it, it's, pure, it's pure grace. And so take what you have, and, and you belong to something bigger than yourself. And so begin to, to lay that at the feet in service of, of this wider community, this, uh, this thing he calls a body. 
If that's a, a great way for us to begin to think of the church, the church is a body, a living organism. In fact, actually, one of the reasons why I'm excited to go down um, to 415 Westlake to join our friends uh, down at Union is because it's a great reminder for us that this building does not define us. This room does not define us. This is not the church. This building could fall down tomorrow and there would still be a community, a church called the University Presbyterian. Because the, because the church is not the building. In fact, when I first came here, one of the things we needed to do is move out of the sanctuary and go into the park, Ravenna Park, and just say, we're going to be outside in a park because we have to remember our identity had gotten a little bit too tied to the sanctuary. And I love our sanctuary. I wouldn't change it in the world. There's nothing wrong with it. But we had gotten a little bit too tied to glass windows that looked really pretty and a big organ up front. And we began to think, this is the sacred space. Well, it's not. We are the sacred space as we take that into all the world. And, and if anything, the church is crippled because we have gotten that backwards. Well, I appreciate Dave was, uh, if you were here last week, Dave uh, Lutz uh, came and he shared on, on service and on uh, teaching. And he had us call out, what are, what are the gifts? And I think that's one of the things that's challenging for us sometimes is to be able to name that, to know how we're gifted. We, you know, we know we have something, but sometimes either we, it's kind of a false humility or, or we feel like in the church we shouldn't, if we call out what we're good at, that we might brag um, or, or something. Sometimes we have a hard time naming what we're really good at. And th- that's, that's a first step. It's really important, and yet it just isn't enough. It's not enough. And here's why I know that. Because I'm pretty sure that every single one of you are scarred in here. That you're carrying a deep, deep wounding. It probably started somewhere in high school. Probably continued on somewhere in uh, college. And and it's it's marked the way that you go about things. Uh, You've been scarred because of the... Really, it's an instrument of torture. By the school system on us. The group project. Do you know what I mean? The group project. Seriously, I talked to somebody who was in graduate school who was telling me they made me do a group project. Right? There's nothing more brutal. The group project. Well, here's, you're going to have to learn how to, how to work with other people, so we're going to throw you in a big group and then tie you all together and then hope it works out well. Right? We, we know how it goes. Who's, let me just have hands. Who are the responsible people that got all the work? Hands? A few of us in here? Okay. I'm just going to assume everybody else is the slackers <laughs> that we got the grade for you, right? It ends up being the group project is not so much about how do we really work together. It, it, what it is, is it's punishment for those people who really want it the most, right? If you want the grade, yeah. if you want the grade, yeah, I love it. I, I don't, I never get amens, but <laughs> Baptist got in the door. I like it. I snuck in here. Uh-huh. Preach it, right? It's the people who felt like... We really want it. We care about the grade. And then everybody else sat back, right? Or at least really probably all everybody else who was smart sat back, right? I, I discovered that after a while. I was just like, why, have I, why am I the idiot? I do it every single time, but I don't want to fail. And if I leave it up to those chumps, I will, right? So we get in this and we, and so we think, why do I want to do the group project? Well, really what it ends up being about is it's not really about working together so much. Is it's, it's about what can I get out of this? And so some people really put in a lot of work because they want to get a good grade. Some people want to figure out how to just get an easy grade. See, we don't know how to really work often. I mean, there, there are some places where uh, they've figured out how to, to talk about teamwork, and it's great. And, and they teach it, but it's pretty rare. It's not just in the church. In fact, uh, the church makes some strides, but the church has a long way to, to go in this as well. Think about this. You see that you can see kind of throughout culture all these different ways in which we struggle or we have this warped view on what it means to be a community. Because when we start talking about being the body of Christ, what we're talking about is one giant group project, right? You know, make, it, make you guys just walk out. It's okay. Hang on a little bit. I trust it gets better. Right? It's one group project. We have to work together. But, but so much of how we think leads us in the opposite direction of really working together. I mean, we might, we might kind of make it sort of work. But oftentimes, we have a really difficult time. Because so much of how we approach things is not so much about what I can give, but it's how can I use the people in my group to get ahead. For me, how do I get ahead by using them? 
mean, just think about some of the shows that are out there. I started thinking about this um, just recently. Think about The Apprentice, right? The Apprentice, the Donald, he pulls me in every time. I hate him, but I love him. And I hate him, and I love him, right? You just hate, but The Apprentice, you see these guys, he puts them in groups. They get sent out. They have to do group projects, right? And the team is just about to tear each other apart. So somebody has to step up and try to lead. And so everybody in the team is trying to figure out, how do I do a good enough job, but not so good, and good that that guy looks that good, right? You're undermining all the time. You think about Survivor. You think about um, uh, you know, groups or shows like Big Brother. It's this brutal thing. How do you get close enough to people to accomplish a task so that I can get ahead, but in the end, so that I can be able to, I just use them to be able to get ahead. It's turned upside down. I think that's George talked about when we think about theology of work. He talked about work as service, which is ministry. Ministry really just means service. It's a, it might not be the most helpful word for us, but it just means service. And when we begin to think, how do I come and bring what I have for the benefit of others, not just for the benefit of me, it, it, it sounds like a simple thing, but it turns everything upside down. It changes things from the inside out. So for me, one of the things I've thought about is how do I want us to be thinking. I want you to think with a couple of lenses. And I, I, let me throw up a, a diagram here. I like diagrams. I spend forever on them. Uh-huh. You like it? Colors. Uh-huh. Here's the, here's the deal. I want you to think with a couple of lenses because part of what we need to do is discover what our gifts are, grow in, in, in those gifts and use them. But, but it doesn't really work unless we start engaging them, unless we figure out how do we use them in the context of, uh, of a wider community. Where can I begin to, to actually not try to be everything, but how do I begin to just do the thing, the thing that I do really well? That means I'm going to have to trust that other people do something really well. Here's, this is in the, in the business sector, Strengths Finder, or Now Discover Your Strengths. The, the guys that, the guys that uh, put that together, Marcus Buckingham, he, began to, he went on this crusade to talk about strengths. He talks about it again and again and again. We all hear it again and again and again. And yet, over and over again, he actually said, discouraging, it was discouraging, that he, he actually saw kind of workplace engagement go down. Or get, go worse after he's talked about strengths. People do not like to live into their strengths. They don't believe that it's possible. Well, I think the only way it's possible is when we can actually experience being in a trusting community in which we can lean on the gifts of other people. <coughs> Excuse me. So, as I try to think about it, how do we break this down? <clears throat> Somebody give me some water from the back. It would be great. How do we break this down? What's the simplest way? And this is what I want you to just keep in the back of your mind. We'll talk about it more over the next couple of weeks. Is how do we build a dynamic community that actually accomplishes something, that moves on something, that moves beyond simply just, thank you, that moves simply beyond just accomplishing a goal to actually having a real impact, a real, real influence, substantial influence. Well, I think it needs three different factors. Okay? And I think you can divide up. I just, you, can, you put in lots of other things up here. I just put in uh, the Romans 12 uh, gifts uh, for our sake. I think, first of all, it needs direction. You've got to have a sense of direction because direction provides energy. You get that through prophecy. You get that through teaching. You begin to see what is God doing? What is he up to? How does, how does he work? That gives us direction, motivation. But that's not enough. You can say, look, that's the way, but that's not enough. You have to be able to have action. And that comes from leading serving, giving. Okay, you've got to put legs on it. It's not enough just to talk about God's love. You actually need to get out there, organize, serve, lead, get, and, and get going. Okay, giving. All that stuff actually makes a vision possible. But if you just have these, if you just have these two, what you have is an is a, uh, overly um, uh, focused team that is just about getting something done. It's a cold team. There's no room for failure. There's no room for growth. And I think the last thing is growth. I mean, we need this. I actually think that you need this in any kind of, any kind of group that you work with. There need to be all of these gifts together, whether it's in a church or not. But the last is growth. So encouraging and mercy. There has to, you have to be able to have a place for people to be able to, to, to grow into things. They can't, nobody is ready to go right off the bat. You have to be able to have mercy and growth that allow us to, to, to not just get cast aside. And for some of you, you, you might have felt like you've been in churches where you felt like if you, didn't, if you weren't with the program, we don't have time for you. If you're not on mission, get out of the way. 
If you're not performing to standard, get out. Some of us know what that's like, even within our businesses. Some of us know what it's like to be in an environment where we know that we can, we can grow. It's the kind of place where you can risk, where you can do crazy things like mash up an organ and electronic beats because you don't have to, you don't have to worry about it being perfect every time. See, as we think about, think about how do we grow together, the challenge is that it's really, it's really difficult. It, it, it's, um, um, and I just want to highlight, it's not easy. This is where the real work of the Spirit comes in. This is where grace is needed. Because we bump up against each other and our gifts don't work in a nice, big, old, harmonious nuclear bubble, right? They oftentimes, they rub up against each other and, and it's the people that have different gifts that drive you crazy. I've experienced this in my marriage, okay? Um, Shannon and I are a great example of this. This is why some of this has come out uh, of uh, our experience and our life together. When, when we met, we were great friends. Some of you have heard little bits of the story over the years. When we met, we were, at, we were friends at camp, and it was great. But when we started really working closely together, she drove me absolutely crazy. Drove me crazy. I couldn't stand being around her. Not crazy like I was crazy, going crazy for her. Right? No, crazy like I never want to see her again. Crazy. She, dr- she just bugged me in, in all the wrong ways. And, and we were laughing, actually, because she took, up at the retreat, we took a test that, that kind of highlights some of these for people. And she was laughing because she was looking at hers. And she goes, you know, I'm pretty sure that I scored like a 1 out of 14 when you had 14s. Like, we're, our gifts are completely opposite. I mean, in fact, Shannon, in a lot of ways, are, and I are completely opposite. I mean... It, it, we went on, because her, her gifts, for instance, mine are, some of mine are leading and prophecy. Uh, some of hers are uh, service and giving. She doesn't have a prophetic bone in her body. I mean, I, we, she was showing me a little bit of her test. She, just, she marked like one thing on there. Like, all of us have some of these. She hardly has any of these. And we, we look at our kids now, and, and it's really humiliating slash humbling to be able to see your kids start to mimic you now, Right? So Noah is Noah is is our angsty child. He's super angsty and complicated, right? A little bit like me. Angsty, complicated, makes things worse than they actually are. Right? Caleb is just simple and happy. And that's basically Shannon. Simple and happy. And 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 so sometimes we've had times where we haven't been able to communicate well together, and yet what we've discovered over the years, sometimes uh through uh, challenging times is how to begin to work together where that's been an incredible gift. I'm so thankful I don't, I don't live with someone who's half as angsty as me, half as complicated as me. I'm up in the theoretical world and Shannon is incredibly concrete. And what's, what we've discovered is that as you begin to bring some of these gifts together, even in our own marriage, that we begin uh, to experience um, this team, this team that begins to um, be a blessing not only to us, um, but to others. Well, one of the things that Shannon, um, her gifts was uh, uh, exhortation or encouraging, which is what I want to talk about tonight. She, we've laughed about this because she was hoping years ago, she said, you know, all I want to do is be able to, I want you to be the director of the camp. I want you to run things. I want you to get up. I want you to lead. I want you to speak. And I just want to sit on the dock and talk with girls. <laughs> it's like, are you kidding me? I mean, even now, here's our Seattle version. She's like, I would love it if I could get paid to walk around Green Lake. What? Yeah, I just want to walk around Green Lake and talk to people. I mean, it's like, are you serious? I mean, the thing and where I get, we get fired up. We laugh about it now, but where I get fired up is I go, come on. I'll do all the wor- real work and you just enjoy. Well, that's what happens a lot of times with this gift of encouragement or exhortation. And exhortation is a little, is a little tricky, so I think encouragement would probably be a better word for it. It can feel like it's sort of the lightweight gift. And for people who can be as arrogant as I am, it can feel like it's not really that, that important. And yet, here's the deal, you guys. The reality is if we're going to see any kind of vision, if we're going to see any kind of potential, any kind of truth released in the lives of people, we, the church at large, has to uh, get a hold of this gift because it's, it is between potential and reality where we're at now that encouragement begins to build that bridge. So I want to share a little bit tonight stories uh, from Shannon and I. And, I, and I, I bring that out because I think this is a gift as we figure out how to use our gift 
Um, it, it's a challenge for us to think about where do we apply it? What is it? What does it mean? Where is the church missing it? Where can I bring it into? And then how do I begin to live into the fullness of it? All of us are called to all of these things. So how can I kind of expand my the breadth of sort of my experience? And then where do I actually bring this in? And the thing is, it's going to apply to church. It'll apply to your relationships. It'll apply to your friendships. Um, it'll even apply to your work. So let me just pray for us, and then uh, I want us to. I'm gonna, we're going to walk through uh, Acts. Lord, I pray that as we uh, walk through Acts and we look at the stories of some people, that you would begin to uh, open our eyes to our own story. That you would begin to help us to see uh, what you are calling us to. You would help us to learn to appreciate uh, perhaps gifts that are different than ours. Lord, I pray that you perhaps even uh, begin to stir up within this community uh, a calling around this gift. Um, so, Lord, you are at work in the lives of the people that were written down. You are at work in the writing of this. We pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would come alongside us tonight and, and lead us into what you have in store for us. Pray us in your name. Amen. Well, here's the deal. We're going to, go, we're going to look at a guy named Barnabas, because I think sometimes, especially with this gift, this gift is all about um, relationship, probably more than any of the other gifts. This gift is really even more so all about the story of another person. So we're going to look at, the, at a character named Barnabas um, and, uh, and see how his story actually inter- intersects uh, with Paul. We'll begin to get a, an idea of what this uh, gift looks like as we see it in action. So what I want to encourage you to do is encourage you to uh, read up on some of these passages later. I'm going to be in, in Acts. Uh, follow along with me if you like. Um, otherwise, I'm just going to uh, read some of these um, uh, tonight. But especially Acts 9 through 15 uh, or 16 actually would be uh, great reading for you to follow up after this. Okay, here's the deal. We meet this character, Barnabas. We read him in Acts chapter 4 uh, where we read this. Now Joseph, this is 4 beginning in verse 36. Now Joseph, a Levite um, of Cyprian birth, who is also called Barnabas by the apostles, which is called, which means son of encouragement. I thought he might be a good example for us. Who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it before the apostles' feet. And so right from the beginning, we, we see that he's been captured by Jesus. He's been captured by uh, uh, the gospel that is beginning to be proclaimed, so much so that he begins to, to, to sell um, uh, property, things he would have a... Uh, 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 he would, there, was a, there was a right. He could claim it. He could say, it's mine. And yet he says, no, I want to begin to serve and be able to, to give it away. And he, he jumps on the scene. Well, we don't see him actually for a little while. We don't run into him until Acts chapter 9 when he interacts with a guy um, named Saul. And so we want to look at this kind of Saul's life in, in three acts in the book of Acts. Don't get confused. Hang with me. Some of you know the story of, of Saul, some of, or Paul, some of you, um, this might be new, just yeah, as a reminder. We run into this um, character named Saul in uh, Acts 9. Saul was passionate. Saul um, uh, was uh, so passionate that he was actually out trying to stamp out what he thought was false teaching with this new sect of Jews that were coming to faith around Jesus. So passionate, he was going around arresting people. So passionate that he thought violence was actually uh, warranted to stomp out um, this threat he saw to faith. Pick this up in in Acts 9, beginning verse 1. Now Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked for letters from him uh, to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way. Early on, on, followers of Jesus were... um, there was this, uh, this identity with the way. They're following the way of Jesus. Both men and women. He might bring them bound up to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. And suddenly, from heaven flashed all around him. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed all around him. And he fell on the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city. And you will be told what you must do. See this? He's going along. In fact, he, he was actually at um, the first murder of an early Christian uh, by the name of Stephen, early follower of Jesus, saying, yeah, stone him, kill him. 
So all of a sudden, he, he's going in one direction, and this blinding light comes in, hits him, knocks him off the horse. He, he stumbles, he, and his companions help him come in. He feels like he has scales on his eyes. He, he can't see. I mean, he went from having all the power in the world, all the confidence in the world, to now he's bumbling, he's bumbling around. And he realizes the very, the very person, God, that he was trying to serve, he actually was persecuting. So he sits and he waits. And then the Lord taps this guy named Ananias. And poor Ananias, he says, yeah, I want you to go and visit Saul. And it, you know, it comes up, hey, there's this guy, Saul, I need you to go talk to him, pray for him. And Ananias is like, okay, Lord, just hold on. I'm all in, I'm all in. I mean, I'm yours. But uh, he kills people. He doesn't like Christians. Are you sure? Are you sure? I mean, you can imagine. Ananias is thinking, what in the world do I really want to do this? But you've got to just appreciate those little moments of honesty in scripture where it's like, okay, great. And he's like, hey, Saul's a bad dude. I don't think you want to mess with him. But the Lord said, go, for he is um, a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. So he goes and he lays hands on him and he prays for him. And and suddenly there's a transformation in, in Saul. Um, whose name is changed to Paul, the, the, the scales fall off his eyes, and immediately you see this fire that was, that was pushed towards attacking the church, persecuting the church, arresting Christians. Suddenly he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. We realize that, and, and as we go on, we said that Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the, the Christ. He's gaining so much attention that, that as we continue on in chapter 9, we read that the Jews plot to kill Paul, but his followers uh, take action. We, the, the, those who were trying to kill Paul were watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples or followers of Paul took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Right? I mean, you have a guy who has all the power in the world. He's knocked off his horse. Suddenly, he has this moment where he, things are changing. He begins to proclaim. Not, he was at, just a moment ago, he was saying that Jesus is an abomination. And now he's saying Jesus is the one true Messiah sent from God. And he's getting so much notoriety that suddenly he's riling people up. And, and, and you've got to imagine, he, he's got to have this sense of, like, God's done something amazing in my life. Here we go. But his disciples have to sneak him out by a basket. Humbling. Right? It, it, all, there's, there's certainly something that Paul has, some kind of gift that Paul has. And, and yet, it's not going anywhere. Really, it's just causing problems. And we see that as he goes on. So he has to get snuck out by a basket. He has to, he has to run away. He runs down to Jerusalem. And when he came to Jerusalem... He was trying to associate with the disciples. These are Jesus' disciples. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple, right? You have to know who this guy is. He stood and watched Stephen, one of the, one of the early, early followers of Jesus, get stoned. And he said, go get him. Go get him. He was highly trained. He knew his Bible. Incredibly religious. He was the major threat to the early church. And suddenly, you can imagine, right? Suddenly you see this guy that's been a major threat that you're trying to, and he's like trying to come around and be like, hey dude, let's hang out, what's up? And Kyle's like, yeah, forget it, you know, see you later. Right, nobody wants to hang out with him, nobody, he's like, no, 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 I'm all about Jesus now. And they're like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, we've heard that one before. You're just changing your tactics. No, 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 I'm, I'm all in, I'm good, come on. Come on, come on, guys. Right, so he's kind of bumbling around Jerusalem, he's kind of trying to say, hey, 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 hey look, can, can I hang out, can I, can I hang out with you guys, right? Nobody's having any of it. Nobody wants anything to do with this guy. The chosen one of God, apparently. Verse 27, Acts 9, 27. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he'd seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. You just got to imagine, suddenly you have Barnabas, this guy who's well-respected in the community. I love how it says it laid hold of him, right? You can just imagine, he's kind of, Paul's kind of bumping around trying to find find a friend, and here comes Barnabas, he just grabs him and says, come on. And he takes him in, and because because Barnabas is so well-respected, he begins to say, listen, 
Here's what he's trying to say. Here, you've got to listen to this guy. Here's, here's what is actually happening. And suddenly, Paul is now in. So we begin to think, what does it look like to be an encourager? The first thing is that an encourager, point one, is that an encourager will speak for others when you don't have words. Will speak for others and to others when you don't have words. When you cannot speak for yourself, encouragers come along vouch for you and even give you the words when you don't feel like you have uh, the words on your own. Second thing we can observe is this, is that those who have the gift of encouragement believe in us when no one else does. Sometimes even when we don't believe in ourselves. You have those, uh, those opportunities where someone comes along Nobody wants anything to do with you. Nobody, no, everybody knows your past. Everybody knows what you've done and just is trying to get away from you. And encourage those people who come alongside and say, no, he's with me. He's changed. You need to listen to him. Well, Paul gets going out that he, he's accepted into the wider community. Suddenly he's moving freely in Jerusalem. Uh, beginning in Acts uh, 9.28, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. And here he goes, right? He's an arguer. The Hellenistic Jews. But they were attempting to put him to death. When the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued, the church continued to increase. You get sense, first, first you have Saul who's persecuting the church, right? Causing, just causing all kinds of panic and anxiety. Then you have Saul and, he, and he's just unleashed in the opposite direction. I mean, I mean, he's compelling, but all he's doing is making, is pissing people off and making people angry, Right? He's fired up. He's got, he's got a lot of zeal. He's got a lot of passion. He's got a lot of gifts. He's got a lot of knowledge. But, uh, there's a sense of when, they, you know, when the brother in there, okay, the leaders there, they heard of it. They're like, yeah, Paul, nice to have you. We're going to send you down to a little place called Tarsus. Long ways away from anything. Could you just go away? And then we read that the church finally was at peace. See, Paul was bringing all kinds of anxiety. He wasn't bringing anything fruitful. First, he was persecuting. Then, he thought he was, he was doing the right thing. But he actually was turning things up and down. See, there's a huge gap often between what we're called to um, and what it means to really live into that. I mean, that's true for Paul. Paul needed a while for him to chill out and grow. There was no doubt that he had incredible, massive gifts. There was no doubt that, that, that he was a powerful person. And, and yet the way that that was working out, the way that that gift was being um, uh, exercised was more detrimental than it was um, beneficial. Some of us need to hear this. And this is one of the hard words that for, for us to have. Is especially when we might, when we're, when we're young, I'm this way. I want to get out and I want to do it and I want to do it right now and I want to make things happen. Some of us who come to faith, we remember those times where it was, there's a sense of like, God has broken in. He's knocked me off my horse. He, he's, he's done something radical in my life. Now I want to get out and do something about it. And, and we wonder what happens because we go, you've called me. You've gifted me. I'm trying to use everything I have. And, and, and yet, I, I feel like I've been shoved out of the way into this place called Tarsus. And, and sometimes what we need to hear that we don't like is that we need to be able to chill out a little bit. To begin to mature. To begin to learn how to actually use this gift. And that's the power of the Spirit is the power for us of, uh, of beginning to know how to apply this gift. And not just to go out with everything we have. Some of us probably have done that. We've seen the damage we've done as we've come with all the zeal in the world, but none of the wisdom and maturity that God is calling us to use. If that's you, I want you to hold on. If you feel like somehow you, you started with a lot of energy, but you don't have that now, hold on. Act 2. Okay, God is working through the church and through Peter and he's beginning to help the, the, the church understand something wider. That the, that the Gentiles are part of what 
the Gentiles are part of um, this uh, God's desire for the church. They had no idea the Gentiles were, were the ones that were outside of God's plan. But God is beginning to do amazing things. He's beginning to, to change the heart of Peter, who's one of the main leaders uh, in the church. We see that when, when this begins to happen, when the church at Antioch, there becomes explosive growth. They send Barnabas out there because Barnabas is the one that can encourage them on how to actually go beyond initial decision into what it, into what it really looks like to live into that. We read that Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord, but that's not enough for Barnabas. Acts 11, verse 25, we read that then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Paul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught a great number of people. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. 13 and 14, you see Barnabas and Saul working powerfully together. They become this dynamic team. Paul often is speaking, but Barnabas is right there in the mix of it. In fact, it's interesting. They actually go into, into one town. And the, the people there um, worship Zeus. And so they're on their way to offer their, their gifts to Zeus. And they see both powerful word and powerful deed. People are being healed. And they begin to think, these are the gods among us. But who do they go to? This is what's fascinating. Who do they go to? Not Paul, who had been talking, but they look and they said, Barnabas. Barnabas is the one who's Zeus. Paul's just the mouthpiece. Right? Paul, but what's going on this whole time is that Paul is beginning to learn what does it actually look like to use this gift? What does ministry actually look like? How do I bring this into a place where it actually can be helpful instead of divisive? Now, it's no, Paul is, this is not about him making it any lighter. He's still offending people, and yet suddenly there's fruit. People are growing. The church is being built up, and that's what Paul and and, uh, Barnabas are doing together. They're building up the church, and they're releasing leadership. The The next point is that encouragers are those who walk with us until we're strong enough to walk on our own. You see Barnabas walking along with Saul saying, here, do it with me. I'm going to call you out of obscurity and I want you to learn to to, to use your gifts. Do it with me until they're at the place where they're ready to do it on their own. The last act for Paul is that after this great moment in which they stand up to the authorities in Jerusalem and and finally break open this door to say that the Gentiles can be in. Those who we thought were outside are actually part of God's plan. And it was in large part because of Paul and Barnabas. They have a split. They have a fight. Because they're about to go off. They're about to visit the churches again. And Barnabas goes, okay, let's take John Mark with us. There's this other guy. I want to bring him along with us. And Paul's like, absolutely not. No way. That guy, when the going got tough, he bailed. I don't want anything to do with him. They got into such a fight that they decided to split. You can see Barnabas' heart here, which he's, he's saying, push come to shove, I'm about building up people and encouraging people. And I will go with John Mark more than with you. And in some ways, this is, this is Barnabas being able to say, look, you're ready to go on, on your own. You're ready to go on your own. You don't need me anymore. I'm going to go and I'm going to develop somebody new. And they split and we don't read about them again. So definition for encouragement. Definitions of encouragement as we look in the dictionary of this. To inspire with courage or spirit with confidence. To stimulate by assistance or approval. To promote. It's, it, the history of the word is to put courage into people. The Greek is this word parakaleo, which means to come alongside and call out. The person that does this is called a paraclete. If you were to kind of... You pull on the Greek. It means somebody who comes alongside and calls out courage for people, encouragement, comfort for people. It's really the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, look, when I leave, you're going to think that you're all alone. But I'm going to send you a a counselor, a paraclete, the Holy Spirit, who is going to be able to help you. See, why this is so important is that so often in the, in the church and in, in other environments, we get so excited about mobilizing and we get so excited about truth. You can sometimes, you, get, you don't want to push this too far, but with the Trinity, you can see grace. 
in Jesus poured out upon it. You can see maturity, the vision of what God is calling us to be, the Heavenly Father. I want you to grow into maturity with me. And yet, so often some of us get stuck in this place where we go, great, I've experienced grace, I know the truth, but I have no idea where to go from here. That's the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is the helper that begins to, to move into your life and help you do what you feel unable to do. You know the truth. Think about that. How many of you feel like you've known the truth? You don't have to raise your hands. Because I've been like this. You know what is right. You know what is true. But you feel unable to actually do it. That's the work of the Spirit. It's the work of the helper who comes alongside. This is where we begin to look at the role of encouragers. Let's put up the second one as well, Brenna. The work of encouragers is to help bridge the gap. And this is what I mean. The gap between potential and where we're at now. The, the, The gap between truth and living the truth. The gap between knowledge, knowing a bunch of stuff, and living a life of wisdom. The gap between call, your potential, what Paul could have done, and actually having real influence that comes out of maturity. The gap between the promise of freedom, you mean I'm forgiven for that, and then actually living in freedom. It's the gap between your mind and your heart. That's the gap of the Spirit, and it takes no less uh, a view of mercy than coming to faith in the first place, because it means you have to open up your hands and say, help, I need help. Not grit your teeth, not try harder, not... Not keep up appearances, but to say, help. I don't know that I can do this. I need you to come alongside of me. The church, you guys, needs these paracletes, these helpers. The challenge is that it's not easy. The challenge is that it's not sexy. And so we, a lot of times we want to, we want to ignore it. But it's the, the gift that the world around us is calling out for. They're calling out for it within the context of work. They want to know, is this a place where I could grow and develop? Or is this a place that I'm going to be cast aside if I don't perform? When we get excited simply about truth and mobilization, there's a world around us that goes, do you actually care about me and about me living into any of this, any of this in any way that begins to feel like lived truth? Uh, a study put out a few years ago looked at some of the, off, the unfortunate misconceptions or perceptions, maybe not misconceptions, but actual perceptions of those um, who feel like they are on the outside of the church. Sean 22 says this, Christians are too concerned with converting people. They're insincere. All I ever hear is get saved. I tried the whole Jesus thing already and it didn't work for me and I'm just not interested now. It goes on to say that that most of the people that they talk to reject the idea that Christians show a genuine interest in them as individuals. This is one of the largest gaps in our research. Most Christians are convinced that their efforts come across genuine, but outsiders dispute that. Only one-third of young outsiders believe Christians genuinely care about them. The gift, it's easy to say, I want you to come to faith. It's easy to say to go for conversions. And yet at some point we have to then say, how do we live into this? How do we as a church do the messy work of helping someone move to actually live into truth and not just speak truth at them? How do we begin to walk with them and speak courage into them and comfort into their life? See, there is incredible power in those of you who are encouragers and those of you who can come alongside and care about the nitty-gritty details of someone's life and begin to call out Something better for that, for those that you're with. To, to be able to say, I know you can do better. To maybe even help people. To vouch for people. To believe in people. Not just say, get with the picture or get out. Not just say, here's the truth. Believe it or get out. But to come alongside and help people live into that truth. I know that this is powerful. So here's my confession. It drives me crazy all the time. Because there are, there are people, if there's one thing that I have felt more guilt about over the years, it's that I haven't spent enough time with people that I've uh, led or served with. Happened at Furwood as I led counselors. Spent a summer with counselors. At the end of the summer, I invariably said, I, was, I felt like I didn't spend enough time helping walk alongside people. There are some of you in this room. I wish I could hang out with you more. 
It breaks my heart that I can't hang out with you more. And yet I've had to live into this place where I go, I can only do so much. And I have this gift of encouragement, but it's not my primary gift. And so I'm I'm thinking about all these other things. And I have to live into these other things. And so I've had to come to the place where I've had to claim God's mercy on my own life. Because I have to admit that I cannot do it all myself. I need your help. I need the help of other people. I, need, I, I disappoint people and I get it. I know it. But that's the place when we begin to say, I can be free to live into who God has actually called me to be. Because in this room, it's, I put this on Facebook, in this room, the highest percentage of people who share their gifts up at the retreat, 65% were those people who were encouragers. They're the people like Shannon, who actually pay attention to the stuff that matters that I don't even see that I'm not even anxious about. It is the gift that as we begin to to, to come alongside people, it is the gift that actually leads into transformation. Let me just close with a couple of things. I I need to wrap up. Here's the challenge in this. The challenge in this to belong um, are getting stuck and losing vision. It's easy for people to want to come alongside and get overly involved in people's life and try to solve something that they cannot solve. This has to be rooted in a, in a vision that, with your eyes on Christ because you cannot solve people's problems. All you can do is point people towards the truth. It's not enough to just sit and be with people. That's powerful, but it's not enough. We read in Galatians that Paul actually gives us a little insight into this moment in which in which they're beginning to say, look, God is doing something to the Gentiles, the outsiders, and there's this fight with the Jews, and finally it breaks open. And yet it easily slips back. Peter comes up to visit, and all he, the Apostle Peter, all he does, he says, I just want to hang out with the Jews. I don't really want anything to do with the Gentiles, even though we said that they're now brothers. But he can't break out of that. And he said, even Barnabas got pulled along. Even Barnabas got, got sucked into the hypocrisy of that. See, when we think that really all it is, is not, it, when our eyes are taken off of who Jesus is, and we think really it's all about just being together, and that is powerful, but when that's all it is, all we do is we start hanging out with the people we like, and we forget the people, you guys, who are outside, who God is calling us to reach out to. We forget the people who are different than us, or, or who, are, who, who don't feel comfortable to us. We forget that God is calling us to reach out to them. We think that this is all about us and us having our own community instead of us being a people who are sent out to bless the world. The moment that happens a moment is when the church starts to die. And only when they begin to, to, to switch on that and repent of that is when they begin to move into a place of growth. It happens all the time, though. It is a constant place in which the church has to begin to say, is this about us in this room or are we about something else? Are we about the people out there that God has called us to love and to serve? The second challenge is this, is obscurity. Is that you, if you are an encourager, it takes an incredible amount of maturity because you probably will be overlooked. Nobody remembers Barnabas. Everybody remembers Paul. And yet here's the thing, there would be no Paul without a Barnabas. People will not recognize what you did. They, you might not be up front. You might not be the, the spokesperson. And so people might not notice what you do. They'll praise Paul. But Paul would have been ineffective if it wasn't for Barnabas. All that you have as an encourager, the gift that you have is simply knowing that somebody has begun to move even away from you whose life has been transformed who is being released to begin to be a blessing to the world around them in ways that you could never even imagine. You get to have a first-hand look into seeing the transformation of someone's life, someone who actually heard a word of truth and is now experiencing a word of truth, but no one might ever recognize it. The person might not ever recognize it. Here's where Barnabas sneaks in again, one more time, is that Paul, at the end of his life, 2 Timothy Everybody's abandoned him. He realizes he's about to be killed. In the end of 2 Timothy, he says, Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. One of his closest friends has left him. 
Um, he talks about some other friends. They've all left. They've bailed on me. Only Luke is with me. He's writing to his, his close friend Timothy. But he says, get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. The guy that Barnabas split off from Paul for. This young kid who was a wuss. Who, who failed in the moment. Barnabas walked with him. John Mark ends up writing the Gospel of Mark. This guy who was useless at the end of Paul's life was the one person out of just a couple that he said, bring him to me for he's useful. That's the work of Barnabas. That's the work of a paraclete. That's the work of an encourager. That's the work of transformation, you guys. If we're going to accomplish anything of any substance beyond, beyond the hype, it's going to be because of this gift at work among us. So let me pray and I'll ask a couple of questions. As you leave this place uh, tonight, I want you to think, who is it that you can thank who might be in obscurity but has played a huge role in your life? Call them up. Thank them. Tell them what you have done, what has happened in, their, in their, your life because of them. Who's the person that you can encourage this week? Simply call out and say, hang in there, keep going. Maybe even help somebody briefly. And then the question is, where are you needed? For some of you who are encouragers, where is it that you are needed? To be able to provide growth for somebody who is wondering if this thing actually makes a difference. Or if it's just the Jesus thing that doesn't do anything for them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you sent your spirit fundamentally to be our encourager. Lord, show us how we can be those who can come alongside and release the gifts in other people. Um, Lord, we want to come with open hands and say, we need you. We need the help of your spirit. And so, Lord, for some of us tonight who are discouraged, who feel like we cannot do the thing we want to do, who know the truth but feel like we can't, do it. We do the opposite. Lord, I pray that we would come with open hands and, and ask for help. And we might be able to experience the power of your Spirit helping us to take one step forward towards you. In your name, amen.